Well, howdy, and welcome to another edition of Railfan Roberts Reading Railroad. <laughs> Chapter 11 Midnight Caller Alf Ludborg a thief? Frank exclaimed. I can't believe it. We'll be right down, Chief Colleague, he promised. I don't buy it, Joe said flatly as they started out. What's the pitch? Frank shrugged and hurried off to inform his mother of the errand while Joe locked the laboratory. Then the brothers rushed downtown on their motorcycles to Chief Colleague's office. Where's Alf? asked Joe, looking around as he entered. We're holding him in a cell until I talk to you boys, the officer explained. He's the man we told you about yesterday, Frank reminded the chief, the one who helped us in Shantytown. If it hadn't been for him, Sutton would have cracked my skull with a blackjack. I remember, the chief replied. Sutton's the cause of his arrest. Before the surprised boys could speak, he added, I'll let Ludborg tell you himself. Over the, his intercom, he ordered the suspect brought in. I don't believe Alf's a thief, Frank said. But he does have a record for petty theft and disturbing the peace, Chief Colling said soberly. That makes it look bad for him. How long ago was that, Joe asked. Alf's last brush with the law was five years ago, Colling replied. He claims he was just a wild kid at the time. The door opened and Alf stood on the threshold. His giant frame almost hit the sergeant behind him. When he saw the Hardys, his troubled face lighted up instantly. I knew you fellows wouldn't let me down, he burst out. Tell the chief I didn't take it. Take what, Alf? said Frank. The police found a transistor radio in my knapsack, the big man explained, but I didn't put it there. Sutton reported it stolen, the officer said. We sent out Lieutenant Daly to investigate, and he found it in Ludborg's bag. Is Lieutenant Daly still here, Frank asked. Would you have him come in? Colleague nodded. A few minutes later, a tall, thin-faced officer entered. He and the Hardys had known one another for years and exchanged greetings. Lieutenant Daly, Frank said, when you were hunting for the radio, who suggested you look at Alf's knapsack? Sutton, the officer answered. Frank nodded. It looks like a plant, Chief. Sure it is, Joe declared. Alf scared Sutton off when he attacked Frank. He probably planted the radio to get even. That's right. That's just what I told them, Alf boomed. Thanks for a lot for sticking by me, fellows. I'll get Sutton. 
Hold on there, Commander Chief Colleg. You'll be back here for assault if you try that. Since the Hardys back up your story, I'll let you go. But if Sutton prosecutes, we'll have to bring you in again. Okay. Alf wrung the boys' hands, thanked them, and left. Frank pointed to a radio on Colleg's desk and asked, Is this the stolen property? That's it, Lieutenant Daly spoke up. Take a look, the chief invited, and Frank picked up the compact, heavy little set. Japanese make, Yokohama Super X. Let's see, Joe requested. He gave a low whistle as his brother passed it to him. What a little beauty. Brand new, too. Look at that nickel and ivory case. It's an expensive rare set, Lieutenant Daly commented. Not many people can afford one. That's true, Frank said. Hank Sutton seems to be just a seedy-looking character who lives in Shantytown. But Joe and I have a hunch as to how he could afford a radio like this. You mean he stole it? Chief Colleague asked. We think he belongs to a ring of thieves, Frank told him. If they fight among themselves, it would explain the trouble in Shantytown. Lieutenant Daly looked doubtful. If Sutton stole the radio, why would he plant it on Alf? That would only call the attention of the police to himself. Frank grinned. If you'd seen Sutton go after me, you know he acts first and thinks later. Then he's probably regretting Ludborg's arrest right now, Lieutenant Daly returned. That's not all he'll regret, Joe promised grimly. If he's had anything to do with Chet and Biff's disappearance, that reminds me, the chief said. The boy's parents received postcards from Northport, too. We're looking for the bald, loud-faced man you told me about, but that isn't much to go on. No, Frank admitted, but we're working on a new clue. He told of the discovery of the fizzle soda bottle and the purchase of a similar one by the bald-headed man in Northport. That's why we think he's connected with stealing the sleuth as well as Chet and Biff's disappearance. Then, Joe put in, we learned that the dock manager up there owns the black cat and rented it the day of the bank robbery to the bald fellow and Ben Stark, the one we saw talking to Hank Sutton in Shantytown. Chief Colleg looked at the boys keenly. I see what you're driving at. That Sutton may be more than a petty thief. He and the other two might be involved in the robbery. As Lieutenant Daly stared at the Hardys in amazement, Frank replied, You're right, Chief, but we have no solid evidence yet to back up our hunch. Joe and I will check stores in town tomorrow to see where the radio came from. Good. We'll do some checking of our own, too. 
Thanks, Frank and Joe, for coming down. When the Hardys reached home, their house was dark. They let themselves in quietly, went to bed, and fell asleep at once. Sometime later, Joe was awakened by a noise. He sat up, listening. It came again, a soft knocking. Frank, he whispered, shaking his brother, someone's at the front door. Instantly, Frank was awake. The boys hurried downstairs. As the gentle knocking began again, Frank switched on the porch light. Joe swung open the front door. Before them stood a tall, thin, worried-looking man. Mr. French, cried Joe in surprise. The costume dealer's mouth dropped open in astonishment. You, you're, you're, you're not, you're here, he stammered incoherently. Yes, of course we are, Frank responded. Why are you so surprised to see us? Why, I, 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 I'm terribly sorry, boys, Mr. French looked nervously over his shoulder. I, 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 I see I've come to the wrong street, looking for High Avenue, and this must be High Street. Uh, so sorry. Uh, good night. The tall man hurried down the steps to a car at the curb and drove away. Joe turned to his brother. There isn't any High Avenue in Bayport. Mr. French must know that. He's been in business here for years. As Frank closed the door, they heard footsteps at the top of the stairs, and their mother's voice asked softly, What is it, Gertrude? Burglars, hissed their aunt. I heard them talking. She called down in a loud but shaky voice, The police are coming. Go or I'll call my nephews Frank Joe. We're down here, Auntie, Frank informed her, stifling a laugh. There are no burglars. After a second's pause, there came a weak, well, followed by, huff, I might have known. What's the matter, boys, Mrs. Hardy asked. Oh, someone here who said he had the wrong street, Joe told her, and switched off the porch light. The next morning, the boys ate an early breakfast. Afterward, Frank suggested, let's try all the appliance stores to see if Sutton did buy the Super X radio. We can see Mr. French later. Joe agreed, and they set off. They went from shop to shop, but the story was always the same. The merchants did not stock the Yokohama Super X radio, it was too costly to sell many sets. At last, however, a young clerk in a hi-fi equipment store said, Yes, we have them. I'll be glad to show you one. We're not here to buy, Frank said. We just want to know if you've sold any recently. And no, the disappointed clerk admitted. We don't sell many. We thought we would, despite the high price. Because the Super X transistor has so many extra features. FM, shortwave, 
Name it. Where do you get them, Joe asked. We import directly from the Yokohama Radio Company's distributors in Japan. The radios come in by ship and are unloaded on the Bayport docks. Have you missed any from your stock lately? Frank queried. The clerk looked surprised, but answered readily, No, but we were short one crate on the last shipment. My boss wrote to the distributor in Japan about it, but there hasn't been time for a reply yet. The missing boys thanked the youth and returned to the street. They wondered about the clerk's remarks concerning the foreign-made radios. If Sutton bought the radio, he didn't buy it in Bayport, Joe declared. Frank asked how he may have stolen the whole crate that was supposed to go to the hi-fi store. Let's cycle out to Shantytown. Maybe we can learn more about Sutton. The brothers hurried home and put on their beachcomber clothes. Then they hopped onto their motorcycles and sped away along Shore Road. They hid their cycles in a grove of short, scrubby pines near the Squanter Colony. We better walk the rest of the way, Joe said, and act as casual as possible. Frank and Joe entered the camp cautiously. It was noontime, and pale smoke rose from a few cooking fires near the water. The village was nearly deserted, and the boys judged that Sutton's shack was empty. The door was padlocked. As Frank and Joe wandered among the huts, they noticed that each one had a trash heap of its own in the rear. Suddenly, Joe darted to a pile in which something glinted in the sunlight. What did you find? Frank called and ran forward to look. Pop bottles, Joe exulted, holding one aloft. Fizzle soda! Chapter 12, The Desolate Island Joe picked up another bottle from the rubbish heap. It's exactly like the one we pieced together last night, he declared. These prove the bank robbers are linked up with Shantytown. It looks that way, Frank conceded, but fizzle soda may be sold around Bayport. As you... You said we don't know for certain that the robbers used the sloop. Somebody may have just may have borrowed it for a joyride. Well, the bottles make it likely that the robbers are connected to this place, Joe ended. But let's scout around some more. The two boys, hands in pockets, strolled casually along among the shacks. Although they looked closely at the few squatters hanging around, they saw no one they recognized. Disappointed, the brothers circled back to the trash heap. We're getting nowhere, said Joe, disheartened. 
Suddenly, Frank's body tensed. Shh! Listen! Hear that? All I hear is the ocean. Somebody is groaning. Still listening intently, Frank turned and looked all around him. The nearest building was a gray, windowless shack with a closed door. Abruptly, he strode toward it, Joe behind him. Reaching the handleless door, or Frank gave a tentative push and swung it open. And warily, he stepped inside and blinked for a moment and in the darkness. Joe, quick! A man lay huddled on a cot. His face and the blanket he clutched were smeared with dry blood, and he moaned and heaved for breath. The man's unconscious, said Frank, as he took the limp wrist for a pulse. Find water, Joe. Maybe there's some in the jug on the table. Joe looked into the container. We're in luck. He soaked his handkerchief and bathed, in the, injured, bathed the injured man's face. As the blood and dirt came away, hey, the boy gave a ga gasp of surprise. Hank Sutton! He's badly hurt, Frank observed. Cuts and bruises on the head and shock might be fractures, too. I'll call the police ambulance, Joe volunteered. We passed the house about a mile down the road. They must have a phone. Hurry, Frank urged. I'll stay here. Joe sprinted for his motorcycle. While he was gone, Frank searched the dim hut for clues to an assailant, but found nothing. Soon an ambulance, its red lights blinking, was speeding toward Shantytown. A police car followed. When they passed the house where Joe had telephoned, he zoomed after them. At Shantytown, he led an intern and two stretcher bearers across the sand to the hut where Frank waited with the injured Sutton. How is he? asked the doctor quickly on entering. Is he conscious yet? No, he's delirious, Frank said. He keeps mumbling something over and over. A man's name. Whose? asked Joe eagerly. He had appeared in the doorway with Chief Colling behind him. Frank looked up at them with a frown. Alf Ludborgs, I'm afraid. So he took his revenge on Sutton, the chief concluded. That's bad. The intern hustled everyone out of the way. Expertly, the injured man was transferred to the stretcher and borne across the sand to the waiting ambulance. Chief Collig and the boys trailed along. We'll have to pick up Alf, the chief remarked. He had the perfect motive for assaulting Sutton. Just the same, I don't believe he did it, Joe declared stoutly. Sorry, fellows, the chief said regretfully as they reached the road. But regardless of the suspicions against Sutton, I have no choice. Frank and Joe walked sadly back to the pine grove, mounted their motorcycles, and rode home.
They ate lunch quietly, puzzling over the case. What now? Joe asked glumly. All we did this morning was to get Alf in trouble. Great detectives we are, said Frank, disgusted. How about walking downtown? I have another idea. About what? The fizzle soda. Since the person who had a bottle of it was in our boat, the bald fellow, or someone else, he was in Bayport. Maybe he did buy some here. The two set off and strode briskly along the sidewalk. At the first grocery store they turned in, Do you carry fizzle soda? Frank asked. No, I don't. The young detectives went into all the drug stores, markets, lunch counters, hers along their way. Always they asked the same question and received the same answer. Nobody sold fizzle soda. At last they entered a downtown sweet shop, which was a meeting place for many of their friends. Hi, called Tony Preto from a booth where he was seated with Jerry Gilroy. Hello, fellows, Frank greeted them. We'll be over in a minute. Meanwhile, Frank asked the soda clerk about Fizzle, but received a negative answer. Only place I've ever seen it anywhere around these parts is Northport. I live near there. Northport again? <laughs> Frank and Joe walked over to their friends. Any news of Chet and Biff, Tony asked. Nothing but a postcard, Frank answered. What do you think really happened to them, Jerry asked worriedly. Did they go off on a mission of their own, or were they kidnapped? We don't know, Frank confessed, but there haven't been any ransom notes. It's dull around here without the fellows, Tony sighed. We were going on a nice camping trip. Chet and Biff told us about it, said Joe. Frank and I have an idea of where of maybe they're being hidden on one of the coast islands. Could be, Tony said. I remember Biff mentioned Hermit Island, the one owned by a queer old recluse who lives on it. He mentioned that to us too, Joe recalled. I wonder if it's that old if that old man has seen any sign of Chet and Biff. Say Tony's face suddenly lighted up. Why don't we get your boat and go out for a look at Hermit Island? It's early enough yet. How about it? Good idea, Jerry exclaimed. Right. Frank said enthusiastically. Joe was already on his feet. Come on, let's go. To Frank, he said, The mystery of Mr. French's mix-up last night can wait. Jerry and Tony paid for their ice cream, and the four hurried out to Jerry's car. A short drive brought them to the Hardy Boathouse. Let's take both our boats, Tony proposed. We might need them, if we find Chet and Biff. They piled loose, and Frank steered the craft down to the dock where Tony kept the Napoli. 
just as the two boats were ready to cast off, Callie Shaw and Lola Morton walked out onto Tony's dock. Oh, are you boys going for a ride? Callie asked. May we come along? Gosh, Callie, Frank said doubtfully. This isn't exactly a pleasure cruise. We're bound for Hermit Island to look for Chet and Biff. Oh, then you have to take us, pleaded Lola. After all, Chet's my brother. Her eyes filled with tears. Please, Frank. Lola's right, Joe agreed. The girls want to find Chet and Biff as much as we do. Okay, said Frank. Pile in, then. Lola cheered up at once, and the Hardys helped the girls into the stern of the sleuth. The boats moved swiftly out of the harbor, with Frank leading the way in the slightly faster sleuth. Before long, the shore islands came into sight with their white, drifted sand, scrubby vegetation, and huge barren rocks. Hermit Island, a big, craggly pile, loomed out of the water higher than all the others. It was attractive, but wild-looking. Too rough on this side to land, Frank called over to the Napoli. Good beach on the, on the lee shore, though, I believe. Follow me. The search party rounded the island. After the girls had stepped onto firm sand, the four boys tied their mooring ropes to trees at the edge of the beach. All went ashore and gazed at the lonely spot. This is a spooky place, commented Lola, looking around her uneasily. It does give one the creeps, Callie agreed. The boys laughed but felt they should proceed carefully. With Frank and Joe in the lead, they set off on a faint path that wound along the shore at the base of a steep, rocky hill which formed the heart of the island. Above the searchers loomed jagged cliffs, cut here and there by deep ravines, thick with pines and coarse grass. At times, Joe cupped his hands and shouted, Hello, Biff, Chet. There was no answer. Looks hopeless, Joe commented. At last the path began to rise steeply. The four boys moved upward much faster than Lola and Callie. Finally the girls dropped behind. The boys continue on, clambering and puffing, forgetful of everything but the tough terrain they were fighting. Suddenly a sharp scream rang out from below. Callie! Frank cried Frank, whirling. <laughs> no part of this episode may be reproduced without my personal permission. Rail Fan Roberts Reading Railroad is a production of Raccoon Gaming Rail's Railroad Productions.
and all all podcast episodes are owned by Raccoon Gaming Rails Railroad Productions.